0: turn with me to that passage that Sam read. Acts chapter 2, the uh, end of uh, Peter's sermon. As he was reminding the kids, it's good for us to remember Uh, Also, the the context of what's going on here. Uh, Remember that on the day of Pentecost, Jesus had poured out His Spirit upon His church. He had clothed His disciples with power for the ministry to which they had been called. And this outpouring of the Spirit had been accompanied by three signs. There was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. There were tongues of fire which divided and came to rest on Each of the disciples and then most importantly, there was the speaking in tongues as these disciples clothed with the power of the Spirit began to to speak of the great things that God had done, not in their own language, but in the language of those devout men who had gathered in Jerusalem for the feast. Understandably, these signs attracted a crowd and and people wanted to to understand what was going on. And so it was this confused crowd that Peter stood up to address in Acts chapter 2. And he told them that what they were seeing was the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel had foretold. Long ago, Joel had, had told the people of God that the day was coming when he would pour out his Spirit on all flesh and all of God's people would prophesy. All of God's people would be clothed with power for the ministry of the Word. And last Sunday, as we uh, looked at Peter's sermon, we we said that that explanation, this this idea that what they were witnessing was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, that explanation probably raised at least two questions in the minds of his hearers. First, those who were were witnessing this, this extraordinary event, they would have wanted to know, why now? After all, Joel prophesied long ago. We don't know exactly when Joel was prophesying, but it was, it was at least 400 years before this event. So why was God doing this great thing now? And also they would have wanted to know, and why weren't we included? Why not us? Why didn't we receive the Spirit? After all, we are the devout men of Israel. And so these two questions, why now and why not us, would have been resonating in the minds of those who were listening to Peter. And he answers the first question simply by, by reminding them that, that now is the time because finally the Christ has come. He who is Lord in Christ has, has come and he has been crucified But He has risen again and is now exalted at the Father's right hand. And having been exalted, He received from the Father the gift of the Spirit. And He has now poured out that Spirit on His church. And so the answer to why now is Jesus. Jesus has come. Jesus is the exalted Lord. Jesus is the Christ who has finished His course. And because He has come and because He has finished His work, the Spirit is now poured out on God's people. But we still need to hear his answer to the question, why not us? Why were were these devout men gathered for the feast not included? Why did they not also receive the Spirit? Why was the Spirit poured out only on this small group of 120 disciples? To get to the answer to that question, we actually have to look back at the text we looked at last Sunday. Because it's in those verses, verses 22 through 36, that Peter actually answers this question. So so glance back with me at that previous section. Why not us? Well, Peter gives us his answer first in verse 23. Look with me beginning in verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The the lawless men mentioned are the the Romans, those men without the law. They are the Romans. They are the ones who carried out the execution. But notice he says, but you killed him by their hands. You handed him over to them to be crucified. This was your doing. This was your idea. And then he comes back to that same idea at the end of the section. In verse 36 he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so Peter's answer to the question, why not us, is simply this. You were not included. You did not receive the Spirit because you killed Jesus. Jesus, the, the Lord and Christ, who is pouring out His Spirit upon His disciples, you rejected. You Denied, you renounced, and you handed over to lawless men to be executed. And because you killed Him, because you crucified Him, because you rejected He who was both Lord and Christ, you have not received the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is received from Jesus. And apart from Jesus, You do not receive the Holy Spirit. But we have to ask, how can Peter say to this group of devout men gathered in Jerusalem for the feast, how can he say to this gathering, to this crowd, that you crucified Jesus? Remember, the the people in the crowd were from every nation under heaven. We we saw that back in verse 5. They had gathered in Jerusalem for the feast, and it's unlikely that they were all there also for the Passover, the the previous feast. It's it's unlikely that, that they were in Jerusalem for that extended period of time. And even if they had been in Jerusalem, it's unlikely that all of them had been in the crowd that day calling out for Jesus' blood, calling out, crucify Him, crucify Him crucify him. Those who were gathered in front of Peter were not all there. They were not all in the crowd calling for Jesus' blood. And so how is it that that Peter can say to them, You crucified him? One possible explanation is that Peter is, is saying that, that everyone in the crowd that day was guilty of the same kind of sin. They were not literally there when they, they called out for Jesus' blood, but they too had failed to acknowledge and, and honor Jesus as Lord and Christ. Jesus was, was killed because the Jewish authorities did not accept his testimony about Himself and did not accept the, uh, the, the testimony that God Himself had, had validated by the signs and the wonders, or that, or that God had then validated by His resurrection from the dead and exaltation to the right hand of God. They couldn't deny the miracles, but they said that He did them not by the power of God, but rather by the power of Satan. And so Peter might be suggesting that anyone who who similarly rejects Christ, anyone who similarly fails to acknowledge Him as, as Lord, that He is guilty of the same type of sin that sent Jesus to the cross this understanding that's reflected in those great hymns that we sing, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Or, or a song we often sing here, How Deep the Father's Love, in which we say, Behold the man upon the cross, My sin upon his shoulders, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice Call out among the scoffers. There's something true in this reading of what Peter is saying, it is is true to say that all who reject Jesus' claim to be both Lord and Christ are guilty of the same sin that sent Jesus to the cross. And so Peter might simply be be saying to the crowd, listen, because you have not acknowledged Him, because you have not uh, received Him, you are guilty of rejecting Him. You are guilty of, of, of claiming that He is a blasphemer. Who does his power, who does his miracles by the power of Satan. And therefore, you are guilty of condemning him to death, just as the Jewish authorities did that Passover weekend. But it's also possible that that Peter is simply addressing the crowd as Israelites. He does, after all, call them men of Israel and the house of Israel. He, He is addressing them corporately. He is saying when the Jewish authorities rejected and killed Jesus, the Jews as a people rejected and killed Jesus because they were covenantly bound together. They were one people. And therefore all Jews are, are guilty of rejecting and killing Jesus, whether they were there in the crowd that day or not. Now I know that not many Americans with our individualistic tendencies like this explanation. We, we don't like to think this way, but this is actually the way covenants work throughout the Scriptures. Think about the first covenant that God made with man. He, he made a covenant with Adam. And when Adam sinned, Because he was the representative of all mankind, all mankind sinned with him. This is what Paul tells us in in Romans chapter 5. All mankind sinned in Adam, not because all mankind sinned like Adam, not because all mankind sinned in the same way as Adam. That's true. We have all sinned in the same way. We have all sinned against God's Word. But that's not what Paul says. It's not that we sinned like Adam. It's that we sinned in Adam because he was our covenant representative. When he sinned, we sinned. When he sinned, we became guilty as his family, as his descendants. It's the way covenants work. And I know that we don't like this idea, we, we don't like the idea of, of being included in a group and being guilty because we're, we're part of a people. But I want to suggest to you that while we do not much care for covenant representation, it is only covenant representation that gives us any hope. Because as individuals, we would still be condemned. If God said, okay, you're off the hook, you're no longer part of the covenant people, now you just get to stand before me on your own we would not be any better off. Because the truth is, yes, we are guilty in Adam. But we are guilty all on our own. Yes, Adam sinned and and brought us under condemnation, but we have earned condemnation ourselves. And so therefore, to be set free from Adam, to stand on our own two feet, would be no salvation It would give us no hope. For as Paul says in Romans, there is no one who is righteous on his own. No, not one. No one seeks God. All sin and fall short of His glory. And so if God treated us as individuals, we would not be any better off. Our hope is not to escape the covenant. But our hope is to come under a better covenant head. Our hope is to have a better representative. Our hope is to be united to the righteous one. The one who kept the covenant perfectly even unto death. And Of course, that's getting a little bit ahead. That's getting into our second answer. So let's, let's come back to this for just a moment. For now, I simply want you to see this. That Peter charges the crowd with crucifying Christ. Whether, whether He is speaking to them individually, saying they have committed the same type of sin, or whether He is speaking to them covenantally, say that they are part of the people who have rejected the Lord and Savior sent to them. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. Whether He is speaking individually, or whether He is speaking covenantally, what we must see is simply this. That they did not receive the Spirit Because they were separate from Christ. Because they had rejected Him. Because they had renounced Him. Because they had not received Him as Lord and Savior. And we need to see that because we need to understand that our only hope is to be found in Christ. It doesn't matter, as as Sam said, if you are very good at being very good. This crowd gathered. They were devout men. They were following the law. They They were doing what Moses required. But their goodness was not enough. They were devout men, but they were still separated from Christ. And being separated from Christ, they were without hope and without God in the world. Because only in Christ is there a hope of salvation. And yet these men, this crowd, they had rejected Him. And when when this begins to dawn on them, when they begin to see the, the gravity of what they have done, when they begin to see that they have rejected their only hope, their only Savior, we're told that they are cut to the heart and begin to ask, what shall we do? We have to understand that it is an anguished cry. They are cut to the heart. We, we've had that experience ourselves. We, we know what it is to, to have that, that slowly dawning realization of what we have done. In a moment of anger or anxiety, have you ever lashed out at someone? Whether physically or, or with your tongue? Have you ever said things that... that you begin to realize you can never take back things that have done deep damage. If you've ever wounded someone, if you've ever hurt someone deeply, you know what it is to be cut to the heart. You know what it is to realize I can never take that back. I can never undo that. I have caused trauma that I simply cannot fix. That's what the people in the crowd were realizing. That we are devout men. We are seeking to honor God, and yet when God sent His Son to be our Savior, we killed Him. What possible hope is there for people like us? What possible hope is there for for people who have rejected the Lord and Christ? And, And I think that's actually what they're asking when they ask, what shall we do? They, they, they aren't like someone who is, who is trying to figure out the step-by-step procedure to, to accomplish some task. You know, this, this isn't uh, looking up a YouTube video so you can figure out how to fix your toilet. What are the three steps I need to take so that I can do it? Knowing that there's a solution. Knowing that if I just follow these three steps, it will work. They're not asking, what are the step-by-step procedures? They're asking, is there any hope? Is there anything that can be done for us? Is there any way that that we can make amends for this damage that we have done? They weren't sure. They, they, They realized the helplessness of their situation. They realized there was nothing they could do. And I think we've been there too. In your life, have you ever gotten to the point where you said to yourself, well, I can't go to God again and ask Him to forgive me for this? The first time you believed in forgiveness, you're like, okay, God God will give me another chance. The second time, you were still fairly confident. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth time, your confidence begins to wane. By the hundredth time, you're pretty sure that you have no right whatsoever to go back to God and ask Him to forgive you again. Have you been there? Have you been in that place where you're like, I've I've got to do something. I've got to to prove myself. I've got to somehow earn an audience with the King. Maybe, maybe I can do something that will earn me the right to ask forgiveness one more time, to ask for yet another opportunity. I want to suggest to you it's when you reach that point of saying there is nothing I can do to give me the right to go to God and ask for forgiveness that you are really in the place for the first time to seek God's mercy and grace. All the other times you were bargaining, all the other times you were, you were offering to God your future obedience like a mortgage payment saying I will pay this off in the future, I promise. I will try harder. I will do better we must come to that point of realizing that we have no right to go to god that's where these people were they realized what they had done they realized there was no way they could make amends they realized that that they were separated from god and without hope and they were asking is there anything that can be done for us And it's to that question, that desperate cry, that Peter gives his answer. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The the Holy Spirit which, which represented The the fulfillment uh, of all of God's promises. He was the seal, the down payment on on the inheritance that God had, had promised to His people. And so by telling them that they would receive the Holy Spirit, He is telling them that you will be regarded as covenant keepers. You will be regarded as righteous in the sight of God. You will be regarded as qualified for an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. That's what the Holy Spirit represents. And he's saying, "If you will do this, you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will be regarded as my disciples, as you will be regarded as covenant-keeping members of my people." And so what is it that they must do? Well, first, they must repent. The word literally means to, to change one's mind. So what is the the change of mind that that Peter is calling for here? Well, clearly it is a change of mind regarding Jesus. You had rejected Him. You had failed to honor Him. You had failed to receive Him as, as Lord and Christ. You must change your mind concerning Jesus. You must see Him for who He is. You must receive Him for who He is. You must bow to Him as Lord. You must rest upon Him as... Christ, this one whom you killed, this one whom you crucified. You must recognize to be the Lord and Christ. But of course, such a change in mind necessarily entails a change of life. Believing is inseparably bound up with obeying. Confessing necessarily entails conforming. As, as Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, the one who receives Jesus as Lord must walk in Him. Because as John tells us, the one who claims to receive Him but doesn't obey Him is a liar. And so this change of mind that, we, that is repentance is a change of mind that leads to a, to a change of heart. It is the, the renewing of the mind that leads to the transformation of life that Paul talks about in Romans chapter. 12. And this is what Peter is calling for. He is, he is calling for a repentance, for a change in mind, for a turning from unbelief to belief. And then walking in the footsteps of that belief in obedience to the One they now call Lord. This is repentance. This is, this is what Peter is calling for. And it is this transformation that is signified by the sign of baptism. He says repent and be baptized. To be be baptized in the name, or or maybe better, to be baptized into the name of Christ is to be publicly marked as one of Jesus' disciples. It is to be publicly marked as one who calls Him Lord. One whose first and highest allegiance is to King Jesus and to His kingdom. As Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 6, there is baptism as a type of dying and rising. You, the old self dies with Christ. It is, it is put off. It is put to death. And a new self rises, a new self devoted to Jesus and to His kingdom without reservation or qualification. This is what baptism signifies. This is what baptism represents. And we must understand that this is a covenantal sign. You are being baptized into the name of Jesus. You are being baptized into the community of His followers. It is not merely a a sign of, 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 of devotion to Jesus. It is a sign of union with Him. Of being in Him. Through baptism, He becomes our new covenant head. Before we were in Adam or if we were Jews not sure if there's any Jews here this morning but if we were Jews we were in Abraham but either way we were without hope because Adam was a covenant breaker the people of Israel were covenant breakers they failed to do what was necessary to earn God's salvation they failed to do what was necessary to to earn his inheritance and so whether we were in Adam or whether we were in Israel we were covenant breakers under the condemnation and curse of the covenant, cut off from all of its blessings. But now in Jesus, we have become covenant keepers. Because we are now in Him who is the covenant keeper. We are now in Him who is the righteous one. And by His righteousness, we have become righteous because He finished His course, because He remained perfectly obedient even to the point of death on His cross, we are now regarded as faithful ones, obedient even unto death. And so this is the hope for covenant breakers. This is the hope for those who have rejected Jesus. The hope is not to to flee from Him fearing His condemnation. The the hope is to flee to Him. I always think of Psalm chapter 2. The second psalm. Where where we're told that that the Son's anger is quickly kindled. That he He is the one who will crush His enemies. And yet, even with that warning, the psalm ends, blessed are those who seek refuge in Him. You cannot stand against Him. You cannot stand without Him. Your only hope is to flee to Him. For He came to suffer and to die, not for His own sins, but for the sins of His people. And therefore all who call upon His name will be saved. I know in, in our modern context, we, we like to spend a great deal of, of time discussing and, and debating who is supposed to be baptized. Is it, is it only those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, or is it also their children? Well, I'm a Presbyterian minister. You kind of know my answer to that question. Yes, I, I believe that the, that the children of believers are to be baptized, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But do not let that secondary discussion of who is to be baptized distract you from the the, the magnitude of the reality of what baptism is. Baptism is a covenant sign of union with Christ. A union that is our only hope. It is only in Jesus, the ark, that we can withstand the coming judgment of God. As I said, I do believe that the children are are to be baptized because I believe this promise belongs to our children. It's actually what Peter says next. Notice, he he says that this promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off. So the promise is for you. It's for those who are hearing for the first time that day. It's, It's for those first generation believers. They need to be baptized because they are coming for the first time to faith in Jesus Christ. Peter goes on to say, but this promise is also for your children. That's that's covenantal language. That's the way God's covenants always work throughout the Bible. God's covenants are always not for for just a single generation, but for for them and for their children and for their children's children and their children's children's children. On for a thousand generations of those who love Him. The promise belongs to to covenant people. It belongs to communities. It belongs to to families. And so when we baptize our, our children, We are saying this promise belongs to you. God has made a promise to you that if you will believe in him, if you will receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this is what he will do to you. This is what he will do for you. He will make you alive in Christ. He will regard you as a righteous one. He will guard you as qualified for inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. You see, we sometimes miss that because because we forget the significance of covenants. We we think that somehow faith in and of itself qualifies us. But don't you see that, that faith by itself doesn't qualify apart from God's promise? It is because God has promised to bless the one who believes that faith receives salvation. There is no salvation outside of the covenant. And so it is a big deal that these promises belong to our children. It is a big deal that we can say to our children, listen, Jesus has promised. If you will believe on Him, if you will rest upon Him, if you will receive Him as Lord, then these things will be yours. God has bound Himself to you by a promise. Not because you deserved it, but because He graciously deemed to give it so when we baptize our children, we are saying this promise belongs to you. But when Peter said these words, when, when Peter said that, that this belongs to you and to your children, he was talking to devout Jews. These promises belong to the children of Abraham. That's not most of us here this morning. How is it then that, that we believe these promises belong to us? Well, it's because of what Peter says next. These promises belong to you and to your children and to who? And to those who are far off. Now for many today, we we tend to hear that as future generations. For you and your children and then all the future generations. Those who are far off generationally. But That's not actually who Peter is talking about. All the future generations are included in the phrase, and your children. So who are these who are far off? Well, that's us. That's those who are not Jews. That is the Gentiles. We know this because this is the way the language gets used in the New Testament. Think about what Peter says in Ephesians chapter 2. Writing to the Ephesians, writing to these Gentile Christians, he says, "...therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time..." So this was their condition. "...as Gentiles. At that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, And you had no hope and were without God in the world. That was the condition of the Gentiles. They were far off from God, cut off from His blessings, but now, Paul says, in Christ, you who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, those who are far off are those who were outside the covenant community. Those who were Gentiles in the flesh. And so the only hope for for the house of Israel was to be united to Christ, the covenant keeper. But now that hope has been extended to the whole world. As Paul says The dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles has been torn down in His body. God has removed the separation. God has has brought them together into one olive tree so that now Jews and Gentiles alike are the people of God. Those who formerly were not a people have become the people of God in Jesus Christ. It is no longer a question of physical descent from Abraham. It is now a question of faith in Jesus Christ. So the devout men of Israel can be saved not because they are Jews, but because they have received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And you and I can be saved not because we do our best to be very good, but because we have received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. He is our new covenant head. He is the new Adam. He is the true Israel. And through faith in Him, we are now Abraham's children. Through faith in Him, we are now the people of God. Through faith in Him, we are now heirs of the Kingdom through faith in Him, we have now received the promised Holy Spirit. And it's because all of this is ours in Christ and in Christ alone that we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace. And we pray that that You would open our eyes to see Jesus to see Him for who He is and for all that He is. May we receive and rest upon Him alone for our salvation, both now and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.